0: Welcome to Pediatric Dentistry from A to T, the podcast that covers all aspects of pediatric dentistry, clinical, business, wellness for dentists, and leading-edge science. It's all right here. And now your host, Dr. Dr. Jared Jared Johnson. Johnson.
1: Well, welcome. It's good to be back. I haven't had guests on the podcast in a while and I'm super excited to get back. Jack has been working all summer trying to nail down a time for me and with vacations and just the office being crazy. Uh, it's been hard to find a time. I know Jack's been busy too. Uh, but we have Jack here and Marshall with their CPAs with Edge Advise, a company that specializes in preserving the private practice of dentistry. And they have been great to work with. I uh, actually had all my book being sent over to Jack. He took a look at it and he was going to see if he could improve. And he said, you're doing pretty good and was an honest guy and said, stick with what you got. So I appreciate welcome both of you on the show today. Thanks for having us. I appreciate it.
2: Yeah, hard to get us all together. I think we probably got what about 10 kids between the three of us. It's, uh, it's hard to find a, a niche in our schedules to make that happen, but I'm glad it worked out.
1: And the topic today is something that's really one that can be challenging for especially people like me, a young dentist, someone who doesn't have a lot of experience in dentistry, doesn't understand from dental school. I mean, you come out with this massive amount of dental knowledge and dental education, which is just kind of the tip of the iceberg for that even. And you're looking at what are my options after. I graduate. Do I want to go into public health? Do I want to go serve in the military? Do I want to go be an associate? Do I want to go work for a DSO? Do I want to specialize? These are all questions that these young dentists are asking asking themselves. And one of the ones, uh, a lot of people down the road, if you look at surveys of new dentists, they want to be a practice owner, maybe five years after graduating. And there's a career path that you have to take to that. And that's what we want to explore today. And there are some advantages, Jack, right, of being an owner. And then there are some disadvantages. I think off the top of my head, one of the advantages is autonomy. Would you agree? 100%. I mean, that's
2: that's kind of the first and foremost, I think, is, you know, the ability to pull the levers and run a practice how you see fit, you know, and with the time frame that you had kind of talked about with where, you know, you get your feet wet for five years somewhere else, see how things work, see what you like, see what you don't like. Um, and then you can kind of take that, refine that into your practice and you get exactly what you want, right?
1: And and that comes also with drawbacks as well. But as as far as other advantages, uh, Marshall, I see another one as just, I think you get a little more of a piece of the pie. Is Are you, do you agree that you see that practice owners have a little bit higher income than maybe an associate doctor would?
3: Yeah, I 100% agree there. Um, you know, in, in simple terms, we usually see, uh, you know, the average practice owner making about double what that, they would make as an associate. So once they kind of build their skills up um, and, and understand where they want to go on that path, uh, there certainly are financial benefits to uh, being an owner.
1: And my understanding also, as far as like some of those benefits, maybe the associates not included in the 401k plan and the matching. Is that correct in some situations?
3: Yeah, that, that really just depends on your employer, right? And what benefit package um, they offer. So when when and kind of speaking back a little bit to the autonomy question, you can, you can build your own practice, right? And your own benefit package that helps you and helps your staff, maybe in a way that um, wasn't as helpful when you were an associate, right? So so you, you get to choose what you kind of want to build into your practice from that benefit perspective,
1: whether that's retirement,
3: vacation. Uh, health insurance um, is a big one right now. Yeah, other insurance benefits yeah. that are available.
1: Yeah, and that's really a tough thing to get through because as also we deal with our patients, they come in and something's not covered as well as they would like. And it's, well, that's a conversation for you to have with, your employer and the plan that they chose for you and it's kind of a uh, a funny thing when you're all of a sudden now turned around and you're the one getting to select the plan maybe for your family and have to make those tough decisions on do you want to go a little bit more cost effective you know maybe if you're younger and healthier than uh, picking a different plan it's, it's not easy and it can really be part of the complicated things i think just not, not going after right, just the financial stuff. There's also advantages to being able to pick your own materials, pick the way that you want to do dentistry, the way you want to practice. And I think those are some highlights that some people may enjoy. And maybe you don't want to have to be responsible for picking all that stuff. But uh, that's one of the things I think is you really can practice unencumbered the way that you would like to practice. And and if you don't want to do a certain procedure, or you want to do more of something, you can definitely work your way into those. What are some disadvantages? I think number one, uh, I would have to say is HR, (laughs) managing (laughs) people, but what are some disadvantages you see from practice ownership and versus associateship?
2: Yeah, I think, you know, some of the big advantages, I kind of want to preface that a little bit with where I think, you know, everybody that essentially is going to go down this avenue of private practice ownership it needs to kind of have a look in the mirror themselves too and ask themselves, Hey, are, are, are you sure you're the guy? Right. Cause I mean, I'm not going to be honest with you. I don't think that everybody should own a practice. Right. I think an associate is a very good route for a lot of people. So, you know, it has to be the right person going into that. Um, and that kind of plays into that piece where you have to have the personality to hire and fire. Um, you know, like you said, have these money conversations, um, so, there, there's a lot of pieces there, but I think it all starts with you have to decide if you're the if you think you're a trigger man or are you happy working for somebody else, right? For the course of your working career,
1: and I don't think there's anything wrong with either one, whatever someone chooses. The no, other, the other thing that is, you know, kind of makes me a little bit jealous is that some of these, if you're an associate, you can just get up and move you're not really <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> you're not tied down to a specific community if you want to go explore I've got one of my colleagues from dental school who's traveled almost the United States working different jobs every few years and who really enjoyed seeing different areas of our country and that's not an opportunity that I have so if you're that type of person where you want to have that ability to move to different locations you know associateship is it's a great way to go and at the end of the day I'll tell you you walk out of that door you're done and that's not the same case for a practice owner I mean there's always something as a practice owner that you're going to have to do outside of the time that you're at work I mean there's things that you responsibilities that you have and that's something that you have to be willing to take on and have to have time and family support to be able to take that on so those are some things. Any other considerations as far as what you when you talk to clients, what you see and the fit? Any red flags you'd say, you know, hey, are you sure you want to do this to any any young dentists?
3: I, I don't know. What I would call it a red flag, but, you know, I think we just the, the, the most the, the con, so to speak, is the running of the business. Right. That's what we're talking about. Um, dentists go to school to to be dentists right and they don't they don't necessarily teach them legal or teach them ar or teach them accounting Um, so what we usually try to recommend is as you try to explore that path you really you want to build your team right because depending on the practice you go into if it's a multi-doc practice there's probably more of that support there where you have more of a practice manager and if you get to 5 or 6 owner docs now you probably have an hr individual um so you know depending on the path you take you can hire around some of those uh like business needs yeah. right the things that as solo as solo practitioners those are some of the hardest things to do right because it's hard to have a a business manager and an hr manager and it's almost impossible from a financial standpoint to do that but um, you know, like Jack said, some of that is self-assessment, and I know that I I personally have clients that are not very strong on the HR side. So when they hired an office manager, they looked more for an HR strength office manager um, to kind of you know fill that gap that they may you know may see as a weaker spot in their skill set. Um, so it's it's yeah, running the business I think is is the biggest. Uh, kind of hurdle out there, but again, kind of having that self-assessment of of how do we build the team around us to help run the business and, um, you know, ultimately make it so that we can have financial autonomy benefits of being an owner, uh, but try to limit kind of those business owner type uh, responsibilities of being there every day, right? Because if you can still be a business owner, a dentist owner, but walk in every day at, at 7.45 and walk out at 4.30 and everybody's happy and smiling and we're having fun, then you got the best of both worlds.
1: And I think what you highlighted there about building your team is really, really important for anyone that's looking at being an owner. You need to have, you got to have your CPA lined up. You got to have HR lined up, whether that's going to be someone or a company that consults. We use Cedar at at my Mm -hmm. office. And if we have an issue, we call them. They can't guarantee you're still going to be the one that has the conversation with the person, but they can't guarantee it, that you're going to do it legally, but they can definitely get you out of sticky situations. You're going to want to have an a, an attorney. You're going to want to have insurance help for, I, I can't list, I probably couldn't list all the insurance types that I have <laughs> on my hands. I mean, I have more insurance. They're like never ending. So, <laughs> it is. Uh, you're going to have to have someone help with that. I mean, all the way, even down to, you're going to have to have a plumber. You're going to have to have all these people that you're going to need at some point, a whole team to be able to call on when you have something come up at your office. You may not need them all the time, but you're going to have to build those relationships with people to trust them and have them be able to have your back when you you need to call on them. How do we look at valuation of a practice? Um, I know there's a lot of talk about some dentists, they have all this and they say, oh, you're buying this equipment. And how do we look at valuating the practice with the equipment and then also the patient load?
2: Yes. I mean, there's a couple of ways to value a company if you're looking to buy into it, right? I mean, the most common is we're going to look at your income, right? And that's going to dictate how much we should pay for that because we're buying a cash flow, in essence, right? Um, Right. Now, there are equipment considerations that I would say kind of move that number up or down. Um, Yeah, but generally speaking, I mean, I think you'd agree with that, Marshall, that income is the driver for sales price.
3: And just here's a quick example I use all the time because I think it relates to a solo office potentially. So if the goal is to have a million dollars of revenue in a solo office, and you have two of them, right? So we have two practices. Each practice collects a million dollars. Yeah. If one owner makes three hundred thousand dollars in that in his practice, and the other owner makes four hundred and fifty thousand dollars in that practice, they have different values because their overhead structure is different. They're able to take home different amounts of money, and it's not it's not as simple as saying. Oh, we're going to buy this practice for seventy five percent of revenues because in that example, that means they both should sell for seven hundred and fifty thousand dollars. But there, one is certainly more valuable and profitable than the other one when the owner comp structure is one hundred and fifty thousand dollars different, right? And those are really th- those are real things that we see all the time. So, really understanding, um, we're trying to understand, are, are the addbacks correct? Um, meaning, are, are the expenses correct is another way to say that. And and what is a true cash flow from ownership of a practice at the end of the day? That's what we're looking for, trying to find that number.
1: And one thing that I wasn't really familiar with when I got into, I mean, I did my own all my own accounting uh, for my first few years, paid all my own taxes, learned how to do that, had a CPA, uh, walked me through that, was a great experience. I learned a lot. But what I think a lot of young dentists don't understand is compensation for owners. I mean, you just talked about salary. So there's going to be a salary and then there's going to be a K-1 draw. And those are going to be in two different places. So can you make sure that people understand that difference when they're looking at compensation for the owner? And what's the difference between a K-1 and a salary? Yeah, so the salary
2: is going to be just a W-2. Right. And that's the number that you pay yourselves. And kind of without getting too much into the weeds here, there could be a point after you buy a practice where you actually don't pay yourself uh a salary, right? And you just take draws, so to speak, right? You're kind of a sole proprietor. Um, what you're kind of talking about is once you start making money and kind of you know, three, four, five hundred thousand dollars, whatever that number may be, you flip to the S-corp, which is by far the most common tax structure for you know, an operating practice that does dentistry, right? And so in that scenario, like you're talking about, Doc, is W-2 wages for, let's say, somewhere in the neighborhood of, you know, one hundred fifty to $200,000 once you get mature. And then the K-1 piece that you kind of alluded to is what's left over at the bottom that you flow through as business income above and beyond, I think is how I would try to describe that.
1: So... And that doesn't show up on the profit and loss. So I just want to make listeners aware that you may don't just you need to look at your balance sheet and your profit loss and what all all the money is involved in in valuation of the practice. And I would also say when you're looking at buying from a dentist standpoint, if the practice is doing wisdom teeth and molar endo and you don't do wisdom teeth and molar endo, that's probably not going to be the best practice for you to buy right (laughs) if you do the skill set that the owner doc already is doing and if you can't do the production I mean you were dental school you saw two patients a day now you're going to go and see 10 to 20 yeah you're going to have to be able to produce to keep up to to that level too right
3: yeah yeah that's a that's a great point and I know what we we look at that when we help our buyers is can you do the same procedures that the, the seller's doing? Um, but a little inverse of that is, are are you doing procedures the seller's not doing, right? Because you also, you may have learned things in your first three to five years as an associate. Um, you may have done a lot of, hopefully you did a lot of CE. Uh, maybe you're, you know, maybe you are comfortable in the endo world and like doing it. Uh, maybe you are comfortable with any surgeries, implants, and those uh, restoration procedures. And if you are buying more of a, um, you know, I'm going to say like a bread and butter crown and bridge type practice, where they are uh, sending all of those out to the specialists right now, there's a good chance that you have, uh, you know, built in revenue potential, that's pretty substantial by keeping some of those in house. So Um, you know, going kind of through that procedure mix to your point works on both sides of the transaction. Either I can't do this, right? So this isn't the right practice for me. So let's, let's go look at the next one, or I can do everything that's being done here, plus some more. So there's an opportunity, right? That I can, I can kind of generate from a business perspective.
1: Yeah, that's a great point. These are all things that I don't think everyone thinks about when, Looking at offices, you might just look at the numbers on the piece of paper that the broker is putting out and say, "Oh, that looks like a great deal," and then come to find out it really isn't for you. Or, "Hey, it's a better deal than I thought it was." So, thanks for adding that in there. Uh, those are some great tips. Let's say you've got your client ready, you found the office, and you are ready to buy in. What kind of financing can people look into? What are the structures? I mean, you can go to a loan and get a bank. The you can pay the practice back as you go, what are the structures that you see commonly done? Yeah, you kind of hit the nail on the head there, Jared.
2: Um, those are by far the two most common, right, is you go to the bank, you pay interest to the bank, um, and then the selling doctor, right, gets their entire piece of the pie up front, right, at closing. Um, the other thing that I think is becoming more common and, and, and will be more common in the upcoming years, just kind of with the interest rate environment that we're operating in, is going to be an internal compensation shift right? So you can kind of, I don't want to say borrow against future earnings, but you take some of those future earnings that you're going to have, and the selling doctor gets a portion of those every year, right? So it's kind of a creative financing way that we're starting to see more and more um, as interest rates climb back into 6 7% that we haven't seen in the last 20 years. Um, now, there's some considerations in there. Um, there. There's a pretty big tax difference between those two items. So whenever we see internal comp shifts, we usually bump the price up a little bit, the selling price, because it is so preferential to a buyer from a tax standpoint that we need to true it up a little bit, right? And so we juice it up a little bit, the sales price to kind of get both people onto the same playing field. Yeah. And just to add on to those two structures, what
3: what I would say is most common in an outright sale where you go to the bank, okay. is going to be um, like a one provider buying one provider, right. like a solo practice acquisition. The comp shift is a structure that is used more in group practices um where things are internally financed and it's it's more of a a model that promotes continuation um, of the practice as like new owners are rotating in and out right so a, a little bit of a different structure for a little bit of a different um kind of uh entity formation so I think that that's kind of one of the bigger differences there too. We do see some seller notes if it is an outright sale or maybe a portion of it being a seller note, but um, you know, most solo practitioners that sell their practice, you know, for them to reduce their risk, they want the cash at close,
2: right? Um, Yeah, by far.
1: How would a structure work for like, let's say you're becoming a partner instead of just buying outright, how would that look like from a purchasing standpoint? Yeah, it's a great question. I'm actually, I'm actually doing like three of these right <laughs> now.
3: So um, it, there there still is, there are two options here where you could go to the bank and get money. That's called a stock sale. Um, that does happen. What also happens is this compensation shift, which in, in simple math, basically you and your partner agree on a way that you're going to pay each other, right? Once you've agreed on a way that you're going to pay each other, the individual that's buying in, um, an example of how they would buy in would be they give up twenty five percent of their compensation for six years, so their goodwill portion basically costs them hundred and fifty percent of their owner's compensation, and it's a it's again it's a good way to bring people into the practice. Um, a lot of times this is uh it, it, again it's built for it's built for longevity right it's built to bring owners in and out of multi like multi-owner practices instead of just constantly kind of going to the bank for for stock um so that's the comp shift is we call it a comp shift right. compensation shift is more of the the common um structure for someone who's coming into a partnership deal
1: so then can you explain how that benefits the current owner as far as the payment for the partnership? Yeah, there, there's a, there's a little
3: more risk on the current owner yep. because they're they're essentially seller financing that. Um, what we do, what we do is we can add a little bit to the top side because it's not as great for taxes on it. But the benefit to the owner then is when they typically sell out down the road, they will also get. Um, What does at that point is a comp shift or deferred compensation. And that deferred compensation, again, is usually paid over five or six years. So at that point, it brings them down into a low tax bracket when they are selling their final piece out. Um, And most people, when we get into these group practices, I say it all the time, it's about stability and longevity, right? In today's market, it's about bringing good dentists into practices that you want to be partners with for a long time so that both of you and and anyone in the practice, any owner in the practice can continue to grow and be in that community. So there's a little bit of that, right? If you're by yourself and you have three associates and they all quit tomorrow, you're not in a great spot. Um, So that stability and longevity is, I think, one of the most important things that I'm always talking about with my multi-owner groups and just kind of creating that continuous wheel of good dentists that are coming into the practice.
1: Yeah, it sounds like that's a another advantage to having that buying is that they're not just going to get up and leave your office and you're going to be stuck with with no associates to work for you. We've got one pediatric office in Eastern Iowa here, and they've got like a $100,000 sign-on bonus. They've got like four offices and they don't have that many dentists. They don't have anyone to work for them. So that can be a challenge as well as if you don't have that that buy-in from them. Is there anything else either of you wanted to add as far as financial considerations for anyone going into look at being either a partner or going to full ownership of uh, a dental office?
2: I mean, one of the items that we talk about is a due diligence process, right? And regardless of if you're looking to do a multi-doc owner, you know, practice, or if you're looking to buy it yourself, I mean, that's something where I would spend a bunch of time if I'm a young person looking to buy in. Um, it, it's great that they're going to give you ownership, but are you sure you want to own it, right? And so that's part of that due diligence process that we had kind of talked about. And all these things kind of flow into that um, is make sure that you're, you know, use your team, use your CPA, Um, Pull holes in the valuation, like Marshall kind of talked about those adjustments, make sure that they're correct. Uh, Make sure it's buttoned up from a legal standpoint. Make sure you do your due diligence. It's really, really important because once you pull that trigger, once you own a practice, it's hard to get out, right? And so we want to make sure that when we're we're helping you buy a practice, I only want to have this conversation with you one time because we want to help make sure that you get into the one that you're going to be in for 30 years. And the due diligence helps. Yeah. And
3: and I would say also just... Um, to anybody who's kind of entering that thinking about buying a practice field is just be patient because we're in we're in a time frame right now i just saw this is a wisconsin uh, department of labor report but i don't think it's much different in any other state Uh, they're expecting that like 30 to 45 percent of the dentists are going to sell in the next five years so that that just goes that's every industry right i mean the baby boomers were the biggest um, working population in American history, and they're all starting to retire. So there's going to be options, right? It's it's about finding that practice and, and not getting discouraged if it's not in the location you want. Because, um, you know, just as we kind of go through the next five to 10 years, there are going, and even shorter than that, two to five years, there's going to be a lot of practices that are going to come up for sale um, in a lot of different regions.
1: Those are some... Great nuggets that we had here on the show today. I really enjoyed having both of you on and I learned a lot. I, I think it's really hard for us to understand all this compensation and taxes and it's it's really hard and we really appreciate what UCPAs do for us. Uh, how would someone be able to get in uh, contact with Edge Advise if they were interested in looking at maybe going into a partnership or looking at purchasing an office? I think the the easiest
3: way would be uh via email and, and we can certainly provide those. But our, our general kind of email out there is curious at edgeadvise.com. And that is uh, where we take a lot of our leads. Yeah. So uh I can right now, you know, we, we help are helping people from California to West Virginia, Texas to Florida, and of course we're based out of Wisconsin. So mid, we have more concentration in the Midwest, but um, we do have clients that, that I would say go coast to coast right
1: yeah, now. For sure. So. Well, thanks again, Jack and Marshall. Appreciate having you on this first episode of associate to partnership. And we look forward to having you back on the next one uh, for part two. Thanks,
0: sir. Thanks for having us. Good day. Thank you for listening to pediatric dentistry from A to T. Be sure to subscribe. So you never miss a future episode for more information or to connect with Dr. Johnson visit us online at www.pediatricdentalce.com. For more tips and tricks, follow Pediatric Dental Seminars on Facebook and Instagram. Thanks again for listening, and we'll see you next time.